Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. All right, we are in 1 Chronicles chapter 14. We've been moving fairly quickly through Chronicles because it started out with nine chapters of lists of names. We move fairly fast through that. Chapter 10 and 11, Saul dies and David becomes king. We get a list of his mighty men. Chapter 12, there are unit defections from every one of the 12 tribes that come and join David and this growing kind of force that David's assembling. Men who could keep rank in chapter 12. In chapter 13, they try to move the ark. It's a debacle. Uzzah dies by touching it, and they do lots of music and celebrating, and then it all comes to a halt when somebody dies. It doesn't go well. It's not a blessing. David then changes course, and he until he's crystal clear on how to do things God's way, he stops trying to move the ark for a chapter. So chapter 14 picks up uh, with the word now, that's what the word now means in that spot, is that we're, we just had this major tragedy, and then Hiram, the king of Tyre, sends messengers to David and cedar trees with masons and carpenters to build him a house. This is a kingly gift. One neighboring king sees that David's become the king, and he sends him a house. Like, not in a box, but with all the builders, construction people, and materials, so that David can have kind of a wonderful house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, for his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. I think it's interesting that he gets a very earthly gift, but David gives the glory to God for that. And sometimes I think we don't, as believers, we, we miss the idea that very mundane things can happen. And you can see these as God speaking to you. And David does that. He gets a very mundane, a human gift, an earthly gift from another non-Jewish king. And he just says David knew that the Lord had established him because this is coming in. On the other hand, this is a king that wants to be a, an ally with Israel. They want to partner with Israel. And Hiram's doing this. The kingdom of Tyre is off the coast of the Mediterranean. This would be a key shipping port for David. It would help him to establish his kingdom. So as we've been looking at the last few chapters, we've been seeing, okay, how does God build a kingdom? And one of the ways he does that is he makes alliances with people that aren't necessarily on the team. And I think that's kind of a neat thing, too. Sometimes in building kingdoms, you have your internal people, but David is happy to partner with and make alliances with non-Jewish nations in order to build the kingdom that he's going to build. Then David took more wives, verse 3, in Jerusalem, and David begot more sons and daughters. And these names of his children whom he had in Jerusalem, Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elpelet, Nogoth, Nepheg, Zaphia, Elishima, Beeliada, and Eliphelet. They have Elphelet, and then they have Eliphelet. And you're thinking they're just running out of names. So the tragedy of Uzzah, David still has work to do. He gets this house built. Uh, the word Hiram, the king, Hiram, king of Ty, the word Hiram there is actually the word noble. It's not like necessarily a proper name that they give here. But David has rapport with him. They build a house. And then David takes on more wives. Oddly contrasting this. So it seems like an odd thing to add in this private sin and kind of moral failure by David so early in his life. 
His taking on of extra wives is not according to the law of Deuteronomy. He shouldn't be doing that. He should be a one-woman guy. But God uses David to bless the nation of Israel despite this fact that's going on in his life. So it's going to be this private sin that eventually wrecks David's witness and makes it so God won't let him build the temple. Uh, he'll have the sins of Bathsheba, which are really diminished in Chronicles. They don't point out all these faults. But they do add that little line there in verse 3. There is a... Um, we know that it's a sin because of Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 is the rule for kings. So when they are going to get a king, God put, it, put together some of these rules. One of the rules, there's not supposed to multiply horses in their armies. David didn't have a lot of horses in his armies. So they're supposed to put their security in God, not in armies and greed. They're not supposed to multiply wives. They're supposed to get their satisfaction in God, not in lust. They're supposed to write a copy of the law in Deuteronomy 17, so David, as a king, might be taking these three months to write out his copy of the law. And in doing that, he's going to find the rules on how to move an ark. And so putting your work or your efforts towards God and not ruling in your own strength, that's a good thing. To keep the copy with him every single day, he's supposed to keep that copy of the law that he has written with his own hand. He's supposed to keep it on him. So according to the rule of kings, David as a Jewish king is supposed to have a copy of the Bible that he keeps on him, that he's written himself, so that he keeps his habits towards God, not to be reactive as a king, but to be following God's will as a king. And then the last rule in Deuteronomy 17 is don't lift your heart above others. He's supposed to have humility in God, not be prideful in himself. And we're going to see in this chapter that this he makes some shifts and changes around those kinds of elements. Um, so De Deuteronomy 17 also talks about presumption as a sin. He's not supposed to pre presume things in the kingdom. It could be that this sequence of events in our chapter have something to do with David making some adjustments in this area. So the listing of the, um, the horses and armies and, and having the Hiram the king of Tyre could be a thing where he doesn't need to go and build himself a house. He doesn't have to add that to his kingdom. God's simply providing that to him. But then when it comes to the rule of wives, he's breaking that left and right. And then you get to this idea of the copy of the law. And you, you get a sense that, like, in verse 10, David inquiring of the Lord has something to do with he's learning how to do these things that he's supposed to be doing. So when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. This isn't a good thing. They're not looking for him to say, hey, David, how you doing? They're looking for him to make war. So you got Hiram, the king of Tyre, wanting to give him a gift, and you got the Philistines wanting to end him. And this is the reaction of the different nations to David. David heard of it and went out against them. And then the Philistines went and made a raid on the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to him, Go up, for I'll deliver them into your hand. This is kind of interesting. He didn't do this inquiry with moving the ark last week. But when it comes to military endeavors, David does the right thing. He doesn't do this inquiry when it comes to adding all his wives. But when it comes to military things, David seems to know how to pray. So it's interesting that he fails moving the ark, but then immediately he has these military successes. And I think the writer's trying to show that good kings inquire of the Lord before they do things. And the trick to, I think, being a good leader for David and Solomon and any king after them is that you seek God's counsel in all things, not just in some things. And this is the kind of the thing for David. So they went up, verse 11, 
to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there, and David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, they called the name of that place Baal Perazim, and they went and left their gods there. And, and David gave a commandment, and they were burned with fire. He didn't inquire of the Lord of this, because the Lord had already said, when you find idols, you burn them. So he doesn't need to inquire of the Lord, because he already has the word of the Lord on this particular matter. And this shows kind of an interesting distinction. When we don't know what to do, we inquire through prayer, through fasting. When we do know what to do, we simply do it. So the Philistines heard of this. David inquires of this. And he says, shall I go up? It's a battle strategy. When you go up against an army, it means to stand face to face or to be, do a full frontal assault on the army. A pure battle of wills. One army clashes with another army head on. Who bends and who breaks first? And so it's a battle to see who's stronger as a nation. Then it says God had broken through them. So David, or the writer, clearly says God did this. God has broken through my enemies, David says. Like, by my hand, like a breakthrough of water. So he sees this great success militarily, gives God the credit for it, in the same way that he gives God the credit for a house being provided to him. So we're seeing kind of the good and bad of David in this chapter. Baal Perazim means Lord of the breakthroughs, or Lord of the bursts. And there's a breakthrough of water. Here's what's interesting about that word. He is, when, when Uzzah died at the ark in the last chapter, the word that gets used there is that there was a breakthrough or a bursting that, of God's power that went out on Uzzah. So it's an interesting thing that this story comes immediately after that story. So where they're doing it wrong, the breakthrough of God's power is not in their favor. It actually hurts an Israelite. But when they're at war and they're inquiring of the Lord, those same breakthroughs of God's power actually serve Israel and become a blessing. So God's power, when you're against it, is a curse. When God's power breaks out and you're for it, it's actually a huge blessing. And this idea of a breakthrough is that it's an absolute flood, like a dam breaks and all the water that was behind it, all that power that was being held back just unleashes for a moment. So God's power gets used to correct David with the ark. It gets used to bless David in, the, in these military campaigns. And David became, um, uh, I think as a king, he's becoming more and more attuned to like this idea that God's power is being held back in some way, shape, or form. And these little breakthroughs are things that help us through our life. The Lord of the bursts, the lords of these kinds of moments. So the fact that they left their gods, that's kind of an interesting take. False gods are ones that you take into battle with you, but they fail to do anything to help you. And this is these false gods, clearly if they brought them onto the battlefield, they thought there was some benefit in this. And the end of the idea is thing, and I think false gods today are the ones we take into life with us, thinking they're going to help us. And they don't. So as they fail in battle, they leave these false gods. Frankly, false gods are also portable. They need attending. They have to be taken care of versus taking care of you. And they're limited in their scope and power. They don't do any good. Verse 13, then the Philistines once again made a raid on the valley. They're, they're back. Therefore, David inquired again. Again, I think the inquiry here is the point of these stories and why they're in this position. David inquires again of God, and God said to him, you shall not go up after them. Don't go face to face. Circle around them and come, up, come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear a sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees that you shall go out to battle, for God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. 
So David did as God commanded him, and they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon as far as Gezer. And then the fame of David went out into all the lands, and all the Lord brought the fear upon him of all nations. I love this passage. I want to sit on it for just a little bit. David inquired again. What makes David a leader is he doesn't stop inquiring of God. And we see that with the ark, there was no inquiry. With the wives, there's no inquiry. But when it comes to the military, he inquires every time he's about to go do something. And as humans, our tendency is if something worked well last time, we're just going to do the same thing all over again, assuming that it's God's will. And it's interesting that God changes the battle tactic. And if David never asked for help or inquired of the Lord, he wouldn't know that even though it's the exact same situation, God wants a very different tactic to be used. This is interesting. And we've had a lot of these kinds of conversations. How do we know when to tell people about Jesus? Well, last time when I, I just went into a conversation and this is what worked and the Holy Spirit was in it, it was all natural, wonderful, worked out great. And then you think, well, next time I'm going to do the exact same thing with a different person and think I'm going to get the exact same result. But inquiring in the Lord should be this habit that David's learning through these experiences that every time we go into a conversation with somebody, we're saying, Lord, how do you want me to deal with this? How do you want me to interact here? What's the most gracious, loving way I can bless this person? And sometimes it's a head-on assault, right? And sometimes it's going around the back, hiding out, waiting for the wind in the mulberry trees. Like, this is a really interesting kind of set of instructions. But to, to change tactic means that we got to be careful about going through our Christian lives on autopilot. And David doesn't go on autopilot. He's, trust, he's trusting in the Lord, but part of trusting the Lord is actually inviting the Lord to instruct how we do things and what we do. So circle around them. It goes around the back. This is how God is going to build a, a dominion with David. And, and knowing something like this is good. It's... Where did I get this? This is a, a quote from Clark via Dave Gusick, and I like the quote. I think it captures this idea really well. How is it that such supernatural directions and assistances are not communicated now? We inquire of the Lord, and it's tough to know sometimes if the Lord's talking back. Like, that's one of our great challenges. Because they're not asked for, is the argument. They're not asked for because they're not expected, and they're not expected because they don't have faith, and they don't have faith because they're, they're under a refined spirit of atheism, and they have no spiritual interactions with their maker. One of the problems today is we don't expect that God's going to talk to us. So we never inquire of God on these things. And Christians that make a habit, like David is, to just constantly be inquiring of the Lord, you actually have a chance of hearing back from the Lord if you've inquired. But if you haven't inquired in all things, you, you can expect that you won't have an answer. And so if we never ask, we never hear. David is asking, and he's ready to listen, and he's ready to hear. It doesn't say the means by which the Lord talked to David. I would love if they gave more particulars on that. But the, part, the instructions are extremely specific. Like, did David talk to somebody? Did, he, did a priest communicate this? Did you just have the idea sitting out in the field? Um, but to, to be in a certain place and listen for a certain thing with the idea that God has gone out before you. If we follow the Lord, the Lord leads. If we're leading and going forth on our own, the Lord's not necessarily out in front of us. So these pauses that David takes are essential to the idea of moving forward in the kingdom. The court of vi the victory, the court of doing it right, is to do it, and the verse here says, verse 16, as God commanded him. 
We don't do things our own way. We do things the way God has established them to be. And if we try to do things our own way and make it up our own way, don't expect the blessing of God in that path. And that's the problem that they had with the ark. They were doing some really cool things. They're bringing the ark to bring it to the center of Jerusalem, the center of worship, but they failed in doing it God's way, so the whole thing died with Uzzah's death. And again, this is bookending these two stories of getting the ark to Jerusalem. These are the stories that show us how they shifted from doing it wrong to doing it right. And part of that narrative is this David inquiring of the Lord narrative. You got to, and it says, then you shall go. The, the Hebrew there is to go forth, to go, go forward. When they hear it, they move. And if they don't hear it, they stay put. If God isn't directing us, we wait. If God is directing us, we move. This sounds so simple, but we miss this all the time. We tend to go when we feel like it's time to go. And we never stop and wait when we're having difficulties. Ready, listen, and then be ready to go. The same direction the disciples got. Repent, listen to Jesus, go forth and proclaim his gospel. And that pattern of being, having our heart in the right place, listening for God's voice in our life, and then being ready to move when God says to move, that very simple formula gets overlooked by almost every person I know at some point in their life. And there's no blessing in it. Stick to the formula. Acts 3.47, for the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be the salvation to the ends of the earth. We know the goal. How do we get there should always be our question. How do you want us to move, Lord? How do you want us to act? So David obeyed the, and the world was watching while it happened. The Lord brought this. He gets the credit for it, verse 17. And he gets the, the idea that these successes are happening. And then in verse chapter 15, we go right back to David built, the house, built houses for himself in the city of David. And he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. So there's a contrast. David's building these houses. He builds a tent for God. That's not the right formula. But David's heart is in building this house for God too, which God's not going to let him get to. This might be where later, um, in 1 Chronicles 28, we're going to see that God says, it is your son Solomon who shall build my house and my courts, for I've chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. It's kind of an interesting contrast with David. David does it right when it comes to battle. He's called a man of war, but he doesn't do it right when it comes to all these domestic issues. Like God saying to him, you know what, David, just do the things where you actually listen to me and be a blessing. But in these areas where you don't listen to me, don't bother with it. I'm going to have your son take care of that. So the, the tent here is not the word for tabernacle. The, the tabernacle of Moses' day is a particular word. The word tent in verse 1 is a very specific word that is a lot less elaborate than a tabernacle. He built a place for the ark to sit. Uh, we'll see in chapter 16 that it's still waiting in, in, in the tabernacle is still back in Gibeon. And the ark right now is with Obed-Edom. So they've separated all of these things. Then David said, verse 2, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark and to minister before him forever. How does he know the Lord has chosen the Levites? Because I think he's went back and wrote the book that he was, he was supposed to scribe the law. So I think he's in it after three months now. He has... He, he knows without a shadow of a doubt, it doesn't say he inquired of the Lord because he's read God's word. The only people that are supposed to carry the ark are the Levites. He also says they should carry the ark. He doesn't say to put it on a cart. 
So when we see verse 2, we, we see a massive change in David, and he is proclaiming what the law actually says, and he's following what the law says in these areas. So in areas of doubt or not knowledge, he's inquiring of the Lord. When it comes to areas that are already prescribed, he's actually now following the Lord. And we're going to see that it's a much more successful attempt. Levites are the only ones that are supposed to deal with the tabernacle, the implements, and the ark. Verse 3. David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. To bring up is geographically accurate. If you come at Jerusalem from any direction, you will be walking up a hill. Even if you come from the, the, the north side, you will always be walking up if you come to Jerusalem. People are positioned differently here. They wait to receive the ark in Jerusalem, which means they're not hanging out at Obed-Edom's house. He wouldn't have enough, you know, Coca-Cola for everybody to get a drink. But in Jerusalem, he's got everybody assembled. And verse 4, then David assembled the children of Aaron, the Levites. The sons of Kohath are mentioned in verse 5 specifically. Uriel, the chief, and 120 of his brethren. So instead of just two guys walking beside an ark, he has 120 people. So not only is David trying to move this ark again, it actually seems to be a much bigger affair this time. The problem last time wasn't how big of an affair it was. It wasn't that they were trying to do worship and celebrating. In fact, we're going to see the list this time is even bigger than it was before. The problem is they didn't take it as a sacred activity. They treated it sloppy. So verse 6, the sons of Merari, Azaiah the chief, and 220 of his brethren, of the sons of Gershon, these are all Levite families, Joel the chief, 120 of his brethren, the sons of Elizaphan, Shemiah the chief, 200 of his brethren, the sons of Hebron, Elal the chief, 80 of his brethren, the sons of Uzael, Amminadab the chief, and 112 of his brethren. Tons of people doing this this time. So it's not just it's not this small affair. He actually makes it a much bigger, kind of more reverent affair. There's a procession then, but only Levites are in the procession. They represent God's blessing to Israel. And they represent how to do it. David calls for Zadok, Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites. And he names off the Levites. And he says to them, you are the heads of the fathers of the houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I've prepared for it. So not only does he only include Levites, not only is he asking them to carry the ark themselves, but he also asks them to give sacrifices and sanctify themselves. Moving that ark is a holy activity. He makes it sacred. Verse 13, for because you did not do it the first time, the Lord God broke out, same word that we saw before. He broke out, he burst forth. There was an outpouring against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. David knows what that word looks like in battle when it's on his side, and he wants the power of God on his side instead of working against him. If you don't consult, God breaks out against you. When you do consult, God breaks out against your enemies. Sanctifying themselves would be according to the law. There would be a humility there. The key of this is that humility comes before the work. Before they move God's ark, before they do it, what God has for them, they humble themselves before the Lord and they sanctify themselves. Assuming that they're not perfect, that they have flaws, they're not, they're not sinless beings. And so the sanctification process becomes very important to them. The priests aren't better than anybody. They're not haughty. They're not above people. They also need to be sanctified. So doing God's work alone is not the whole picture. Doing God's work the right way is the picture. And you're like, ah, for like three weeks, we've just keep hearing that in Chronicles. Seems to be a theme. 
If they don't sanctify, they're not fit for service. So because you did not, Uzzah isn't blamed. I think that's kind of interesting. There's no blame on Uzzah for touching the ark here. The blame is on the whole Levite crew that didn't do their job and, and proclaim that they're the ones that are supposed to do it. It says, you did not. And then here's what I like about David's leadership. In verse 13, it says, we did not. David doesn't just blame people. He's there too. He should have known better too. He should have had that law and understood it before they tried to do God's work. So David directly points out the failing that was there, but he also owns his part of the responsibility for that. This is also my fault. And I just think the integrity of David, the kind of guy he is, the kind of man he is, this is how you build kingdoms. You have people that understand it, that he should have demanded that they consult of God, just like when David goes out to battle. He should have inquired of the Lord. So we don't have to consult God about the sanctification process. He's written it down. He knows what it looks like. We as Christians don't have to consult God about what salvation looks like. He's written it down, and we know that Jesus spoke of it. We repent of our sins, we confess Jesus is Lord of our life, and we seek to follow him, and he forgives us of our sins because he's already purchased us with a redemption price to save us from sin. So we know the game plan. We know what it looks like. We just need to live by it. If we want to bless the Lord in service to the Lord, we actually have to tend to those things. We have to attend to them. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel, and the children of the Levites bore the ark on their shoulders. It's very particular. Not on a cart. They put it on their shoulders by its poles as Moses had commanded them according to the word of the Lord. Last week we read some of those laws. So these poles went through the rings on the side of the ark so that nobody actually touched the ark. It's not man's place to do it. They bear the weight of it, and what's inside the ark are the tablets of the law. They bear the weight of the law themselves. And this image becomes important. Verse 14 and 15, they're doing it the right way. They bear the ark. Spiritually then, they've read and obeyed the law. Physically, they provide an image of reading and bearing the weight of the law. And Jesus then does this thing. It's interesting because Jesus says he bears the weight of the world on his shoulders. He is sanctified according to prophecy. And Jesus says, take up my yoke because my burden is easy and light. And the imagery that's important here for God is that he's setting things up for Jesus. To do it by the poles, no direct contact. This is God's domain. God will provide mercy to Israel. And God's going to bear this. He's, he is the law. God, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And God's going to do this himself. So according to the word, that's how important this is. These images are important to God. And it's key for David's generation to see this. The Torah wasn't just a collection of writings. God fully expected them to follow the word that was given to Moses generations before. True for us too. The, word, the New Testament, the story of Jesus Christ, the gospel, it's not just a collection of old stories. There's the power of a living God behind those stories. And God, though he is waiting so that no, people can repent and come to him, that doesn't diminish by any means how important it is that we follow those, those requests and those demands that God has made of us. So he's elevating the importance of God's word. He eleva God elevates it himself by killing Uzzah and showing how what happens when you break it. 
But David elevates it by celebrating and doing it right. And the word of the Lord is then expanded. So the end of verse 15, it's according to the word of the Lord. And it gets its prominence. God doesn't need us to elevate his word. He can do it himself. And in doing it the right way, David becomes God's ally in elevating the word of God by following it. It takes first priority. To claim God's word and ignore it is a false ministry. It's idol worship. To claim that you're doing what God wants us to do, but you're not doing it God's way, it's an empty activity, and people like Uzzah can get hurt. And we don't name people Uzzah anymore. Like, that's just not a popular name on the planet. And part of that is why. Like, you wouldn't want that namesake. Verse 16, Then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps, cymbals, by raising the voice with resounding joy. In the same way that we had some discussion about worship when we were back in chapter 13, this comes back to worship. And I really want you to notice this about this round of worship. It doesn't get smaller this time around. It actually gets bigger. When David follows God's word, he can go forward with confidence and the And it gets even more elaborate because he's got his foundation. Music, therefore, last time wasn't the issue. It was that they didn't have their foundation in the right place. This time the Levites are appointed for music, not just anybody, but sanctified servants. You don't just put anybody into worship. You pick the people that God has selected for that job. Verse chapter 13, 8 said, Then David and all Israel played music before the leadership of that music was established and sanctified. There's no record of Levites doing it last time. This time they make a point of the fact that the Levites are going to be the lead singers that are going to guide the nation in worship. This is the human approach. We think, well, I can play an instrument, and then we say, well, cool, go ahead and lead worship. But that's not necessarily God's way of doing this. That might be fine in other elements, but when it comes to sacred worship, There's more than just being able to play an instrument that puts you in that position. There has to be a faithfulness and a heart and a a dedication to a ministry that comes along with that. So this time the Levites, and then they're appointing their brethren, people they know, other Levites, and the people that are prepared for ministry prior to doing any kind of music. Their heart comes first, the music comes second. And I think we see this model of what this looks like. I want to point out that symbols are being used. Sometimes there's a lot of division and debate about music in the church. It is, I would say, one of the chief areas that churches divide. Even churches that aren't divided have two services, one with that kind of music, one with this kind of music. Imagine that. You're taking a fellowship of believers and you're dividing the church into two things based on music, kinds of music. So I want to point out the symbols here for this, and I want to point out that it says, by raising the voice with resounding joy. So the world says music has to be excellent and glorify God. The Father says music has to be sanctified, but doesn't say what kind there is. The enemy says music has to be more, it has to be better, it has to be fancier. And the Spirit, I think, says, no, music has to be joyful. It has to have a resounding joy. It ha- to resound joy means you walk out of the room and you're still singing some of the songs. It has to have something that resounds through the week. The flesh says, oh, when I do music, I got to chill out because people are going to hear me sing and I'll be embarrassed. That's the flesh speaking. But this, Jesus says, basically, he spits out the lukewarm. Get over yourself. Worship him because he's asked you to. doesn't matter what people think. It's amazing how music and worship, this very spiritual activity that we have as humans, it's amazing how the enemy, the world, and the flesh make this a source of division in our churches and in our own hearts. 
But in this case, we don't have that at all. We got the Levites, they're appointed, they're singers, they're accompanied with all sorts of music. These cymbals are loud as heck. They're big pieces of metal getting smashed together in time. This is not quiet music. This is loud celebratory praising. And I think the Bible has two kinds of music. They have worship and they have praise. Worship is reverent and quiet, serene. It brings you into the presence of God with a calmness and a peace. Praise is loud. It has symbols. It is celebratory and it draws attention to whatever is going on at that moment. And it brings people in the door. And those two different things are things we see in the word. The resounding joy here has nothing to do with the talent and the skill and the precision and the excellence. It starts with joy. In verse 22, we see skill. So skill's part of it. It just comes after this piece of resounding joy. First, they're sanctified. Then they're able to sing with joy. Then we think about talent and skill around music. If we're looking at the biblical ordering of these qualifications and what it looks like. So worship, the worship team gets named. I love that the part of the origin of Israel as a nation is that they name their worship team. So verses 17 through 22, another long list of names for a very large worship team. This is bigger than any worship team I've seen in a modern church. This is massive. So I don't know if they're including the backup singers or anything like that, but this looks like an entire choir. I want to point out in verse 17, we see the names Heman. We see Asaph in verse 17. These are two of the people get named in the Psalms. Uh, these are the singers, the talented musicians that are there. I want to point out in verse 18 that they have ranks. It's interesting that they have ranks. Music in this era, when you have ranks or authority structures, even in music, it means there's worship leaders. Verse 22 uses the word leader. They actually have worship leaders. They have authority structures. There's an order to what they're doing. It's not just all willy-nilly. I love campfires on the beach where everybody just brings an instrument and they start singing together. And we do music nights that look like that. But when it comes to this sanctified worship that's going to be part of something God wants to get done, there's an order to it all. And there's a structure to it. And it doesn't say here that the skill here is, is leadership in verse 22. This leader of the Levites was an instructor in charge of the music, so there's authority, because he was skillful. What puts him in charge? Well, he actually has talent, which could imply that these other names don't have a lot of talent. But I think what it means is that this guy actually knew music and the craft of music in an important kind of way. So he gets put in charge, but the first qualification is that their heart is there and that they're raising the voice with resounding joy. And then leadership starts to get to determine after that first qualification is there. So we appoint faithful people before we consider the skillfulness. I would rather have a joyful, heart-filled worship session led by somebody with less talent than a super talented person who just does not follow the Lord and they're not living it. And the blessing is going to come, I think, when the, that order gets right. I think we often mix that up. If they have joyful music for the heart, skill happens over time. And people get better at things the more they do it. So put people in a position that have the right heart and trust that skill will happen. The idea that there was an instructor here denotes that those musicians were teaching one another. There's a community of musicians that happens. I think this is important in the church, that the skillful musicians are actually teaching and giving tips to the less skillful musicians. They're helping them grow. Because I think sometimes people love music and they got a heart for it, but they just didn't grow up in a musical family. 
So they don't know how to play the instruments or do that. So part of this healthy environment amongst God's people is that you've got the skilled people giving tips and instruction to the less skilled people. And music can start to happen in a more skillful and a powerful way. So they had a, a, a heart, they have skill, they have instruction, and they have authority structures of people that are in charge. I also want to point out before we get to verse 23, David doesn't micromanage any of this. He puts people in charge of it and he lets them do their job. And that puts, takes a lot of weight off of David as a king. He doesn't have to manage this, even though David loves music. And we know David can play music. This is where he started. Right? He was a worship leader for Saul. He played the heart in the throne room of the king. He was an incredibly gifted musician. Yet he delegates this, hands it off, and lets other people do it. And the ministry, the work of God can go forward. Verse 23, Barakiah and Elkanah were doorkeepers for the ark. Shebaniah, Jehoshaphat, another list of names there. Again, I'm getting sloppy with reading off all the names. Uh, were the priests that were going to blow the trumpets before the ark of God. This is different than the worship team. And Obed-Edom, who we know from, the, he got to actually hang out with the ark. And Jehiah, the doorkeepers for the ark. So there are doorkeepers, there are trumpet blowers, and there are more doorkeepers. This is an interesting kind of thing. And how do we read this and look at this today? Well, the doorkeepers for the ark would be kind of like when the president goes in, does a walk through a town, there's all these like secret service people surrounding them. So people can't just run up and hug the president. So doorkeepers of the ark would have been these kind of guys that were walking around the ark, keeping the masses away from it. This is not Nobody can just run up and try to get blessed by touching the ark. And this idea that there are ushers, there are people protecting and guarding the work of God, and they're surrounding them. The trumpets were being blown to announce where the ark was, so everybody knew what was going on. So we have this, this wall of people around God's ark that basically keep people from stumbling. <laughs> and they, they guard this walking process as these priests carry the ark. So David, verse 25, the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. The fact that they know they're doing it right, they can do it with joy. You'd think they would be doing this with dread. Last time we tried this, Uzzah died. So we really want to try this again. They're terrified of doing it. The fact that in verse 25 they can do this with joy says that they've read God's word. They know they're doing it the right way. And when you know you're doing it the right way, you don't have to be scared. And that's the thing. This is the thing that unbelievers don't get. Well, when you become a Christian, you're all limited. You can't do this. You can't do that. You've limited yourself here. You, no, 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 no. We just know where the law is. And within that, we can have freedom and we can have joy because we know we're doing it within God's law. We know we're living within the parameters of righteousness. There's a great freedom in that. And we see the same thing here. It's not that they're limited in how they're doing things. It's that they're doing it God's way. So now they can have joy with the things that they're doing. They don't have a fear of death because they, they have a knowledge of God. They have a fear of God so they don't have to have a fear of this world. And so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. When God helps them, this is an amazing line. How did God help them? Did he make the ark lighter? To literally make the burden lighter? To be an image of... I don't know. It doesn't say. But he gave his word and he kept it. Same for us. When you do it my way, it will be easier when you do it my way. So God helps them move the ark. 
Maybe it's that they got there and they didn't trip. They didn't stumble like Uzzah did. There was no hiccups. Nothing went wrong. And David's simply giving the credit to God for everything going right in the same way that he gave credit to God for Hiram sending him house supplies and masons and architects. He's just recognizing this is God's divine help that everything went smoothly. It's really interesting. God has set all of this up. He sets it up by writing his word and he says, if you touch it, you'll die. So we have clear lines that are drawn by God. They break the lines and God keeps his promise. And you say, well, what a harsh God. But that same law that says, if you touch it, you die, will actually hurt people. That same law means that if, okay, well, if I don't touch it, then I'm in good shape, right? And the answer is right. And I think there's this element where that's where the joy comes from. That's where God's help comes from. God's help is that he gave his word. And he said, this is how it's going to work. And he, and he will show us that his, that works either way. If we break the law, we experience the curse. If we keep the law, we get the blessing. Of do, and there's this spiritual joy that comes with them when they do it. The other th- reason in the way that they, I think they can have confidence here is that the ark itself, though it killed Uzzah, was at Obed-Edom's house. And in chapter 13, 14, the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. So God's showing all of Israel what a blessing this ark is, if you handle it the right way. God's law is an amazing blessing in our lives if we handle it the right way. If we become legalists with it, that doesn't bring joy. The Pharisees missed the mark. But if we keep it and we do it faithfully and we have joy in our life and peace in our life, it's actually done the right way. Here's the thing that kind of blows me away. People will be having troubles and anxieties in their life, and when you kind of dig down on it, you find a point at which they're not keeping God's law. And then you say, well, why don't you do this? This is what God's word says you should do. Well, I don't know if I can do that. That's going a bit too far. I just, that's the point I struggle. And you get down there and you drill down and you notice that's exactly the point at which your life is harder. It's because you're not taking in faith what God has said to do in that situation. Therefore, you're having these problems, anxieties, and stresses because you've missed this mark. And when it's shown to you and presented to you, you're not as humble as David who repents, turns from his ways, and tries again doing it the right way. And he does it the right way, and there's joy in this outpouring. The offerings of bulls and rams, seven and seven, divine number. It just goes perfectly And then they offer up to God a perfect sacrifice, a divinely appropriate sacrifice. God helps the Levites, and the humans recognize that that's divine help from God because they couldn't figure it out themselves. And I just, that idea of when when there's something in your life that's contrary to God's law, stop doing it. And when something's going on in your life that's contrary to God's law, and you just continue to have that stress, that anxiety, you're dying on the inside where Uzzah died actually, Like, change. Alter it. And this is the great strength of this chapter. David readjusts course, and the result is even better than what was tried in the flesh. It could be the seven bulls, the seven rams. 2 Samuel 6 says every six steps they would make a sacrifice on this trip. Like, that's a little detail you get in 2 Samuel. So if that's the case... They're taking six steps, which is human effort, and then they stop and give a sacrifice, and they celebrate, and they sing, and they do songs. This would be an all-day affair to move this thing a few miles. So just six steps, sacrifice, six steps, sacrifice. Um, it, the, the verse here implies that they, um, they did the moving, and then there was seven 
seven bulls and seven rams at the end of the process. But the number seven here is likely important. It's this idea of doing it God's way, not man's way. Verse 27. We get to see how David was dressed. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who bore the ark. The singers and Chenaniah, the music master with the singers, David also wore a linen ephod. All right, some people do this thing because we're coming up on this passage where David's dancing in town and people will say, well, really the Bible means he was naked. He was exposed when he was running through town and that's why his wife was upset. Verse 27, you actually have to include in the narrative too. It actually says, literally, David was clothed and it tells you how he was clothed. We know if we look back in Leviticus that the clothing of the Levites was this linen, the, the robe that would go under the ephod. None of these priests have the ephod on because they're just acting as priests. But under the linen were underwear. And it's actually described in the law. So when it says, um, as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the point of how David is dressed here in verse 27 is that he looks like all the other Levites. He's not promoting himself above everybody else. This is important because of Deuteronomy 17, the rule of kings. He's not supposed to presume, and he's not supposed to puff himself up above anybody else. And I think that when in verse 27, we're seeing that, okay, David is now following the law of kings. He's doing things God in every area except for his wives. He's doing things the right way. And David was clothed, and he goes there. The problem with his clothing and not promoting himself is that that is extremely Jewish. It's not how the pagans did it. And the problem with David's wife is she wanted David to puff himself up as a king. If you've got everybody together, it's a chance for you as a king to promote themselves. Think of a politician when a camera's in the room. For them, that camera is an opportunity to promote themselves. It's always an opportunity to promote themselves. Well, this is an idea where the cameras are on and David's not promoting himself. He's letting the ark have the prominent position. In fact, if you didn't have a photo of David on your wall, you wouldn't even know which one he is. He's just one of the priests. He's wearing a linen ephod like everybody else. It's interesting that David humbles himself in this way and becomes like every other Levite that's out there. He's not a Levite, so he's not touching the ark. There's, there's evident, there's, he's not on the worship team list. So he's singing with the Levites. He's not one of the leaders in this sense, even though he's a great musician. He's not there to stand out or make a scene. He's just blending in. And that wouldn't draw intention to himself. And it's really emphasized here, as were all the Levites who bore the ark. And David wore a linen ephod. He put something kind of over that. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with the shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets, with cymbals, making music with stringed instruments and harps, quite an affair. It's not the size of the production. It's the foundation of the production. Thus, all of Israel, this is a lot bigger group. Everybody can enjoy this now because it's done the right way. When it's done right, all believers benefit from how it's done. So all-in worship is kind of a corporate, reinforcing message of joy. They demonstrate it, and then everybody gets to participate in it. So this is written in such a way that I think we're supposed to see this production is even bigger than the first try when it's done right. They're shouting that is clearly they have a Jewish word for singing. That is not the word they use here. They use the word shouting. So when people say, oh, I don't want to sing too loud because I don't have a good voice. Okay, God's not asking for a good voice. 
the what's good about this section is that they were shouting it out that means that the people that are in the crowd are not melodic they're not great singers they're great shouters and they're shouting the praise to the Lord. I think what's beautiful when you get a large group of people shouting praise to the Lord is from a distance it actually sounds like singing. And that loudness, that, that heartfelt peace that's going on is for people in the act of praise to let go of their dignified flesh. I don't need to be dignified. I need to cut loose for God and give him everything I have. That's really hard for some people. I think it's harder for guys than it is for girls, if I could be sexist for a moment. I think it's a really difficult thing to just let go of yourself and let God have what he's asked for, which is your worship. It's a discipline. It's hard to get into that discipline. It's definitely a tough thing to do. But there had to be a rising joy as every time they took a step, nobody died. right? And there had to be a joy that God's blessing this process. They started the first time with all sorts of human excitement, and then the party died with Uzzah's death. Like, oh, hey, something went wrong there. This time, it's the opposite. They start with a fear of the Lord. Okay, how's this going to go? David's trying it again. But every step they take, the excitement just keeps getting bigger and better. We're doing it right. God's blessing this. My goodness, I think that I think those priests just, it, they don't seem to be struggling or sweating at all, right? This is awesome. God's helping us do this. And the excitement just gets bigger and bigger. It, it works the opposite way in the kingdom of God. You start with fear, you move towards joy and resounding shouting of praise. And in the world, it starts with the big party, but it, it ends with a hangover. And that with God, the party goes the opposite direction. It just gets better and better. But David's moving along here. He's very unkingly, but he's sanctified. He's unstoic, but he's joyful. It's super public. He's not lukewarm about it. The praise and the resounding joy go up, as were all the Levites. I just love this. Thus all Israel is doing this together. The beginning of the nation of Israel was this beginning in song with David. And the chronicler is trying to show us that. This is what's great about Israel. They know how to sing together. They know how to have this joy. All Israel had joy in doing this. And the word shouting here, again, I I just, I want to emphasize how beautiful and how tender and how wonderful it is when people stop caring about how it sounds. And you just sing it out of the heart of joy. The sacrifice of praise is then letting go of that dignified self. That's what David's doing. And this rising joy that starts to happen amongst the nation had to be exciting for everybody but David's wife, who's watching this happen, and there's something just ugly in her heart. She doesn't see joy. She sees her husband not taking advantage of a political opportunity. And there's something, like, how do you not see that this is super great? But as it happened... Has it happened? We believers love our worship. We should also be aware of how non-believers perceive our worship. Just a thought. As it happened. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michal, David's daughter, looked through the window and saw David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. First of all, why is she in a house? Why isn't she out with the rest of Israel celebrating? Because she's above it all. She's more important than that. She's not going to be down there with the masses. So this bothers Michal. There is an issue with her heart. She despises David at the point of him doing worship. And looking at him through a window, what a contrast. David's down on the street marching in with everybody, leading his nation in worship, being the chief shouter. And David is whirling. Okay, you might think that's a weird modern dance, 
But this image of a king whirling, spinning around, it's quite a picture. And we see today that this is an, an appropriate thing that a number of the Levites, and when you see like a wedding march in, in, Jewish, in traditional Jewish culture, they still do this thing that's whirling, right? It's not like, like Spanish Macarena dancers. It is this kind of like single step twist that you would have. It's a, it's a joyful movement. It's not out of control. It's appropriate. Other Levites would have been whirling too. It's not that David is standing out as a freakish worshiper. He's blending in when it says this. He's just part of the crowd. But the king isn't supposed to look like the crowd, according to her. The king is supposed to look like a king. Saul always looked like a king, but he never was a king. David doesn't try to look like a king, but he's always been a king. And this is how God works. It's not about our own dignity. It's not about elevating ourselves. It's about elevating the Lord God Almighty and him doing the work for us. So he's not out of step. I just want to point that out. Some people use this verse with David to justify being ridiculous in a church setting. And David's not being outside the norm of what everybody else is doing with worship. He's participating in corporate worship. But she despises him. Why does evil despise the celebration of the godly? Why do they hate it so much when godly people are just having fun and enjoying themselves? I've never understood this. It doesn't bother me when ungodly people are out having fun. I'm just not joining them. So why does it bother her so much? 2 Samuel 6 tells us that she didn't like how he removed his kingly robes and he didn't try to show his own glory. So she doesn't like how he's sitting in this situation being like everybody else. So she's not, oh, look at David's innocence, his freedom. Look at how he delights in his God. Look at his humility. She's thinking, look at this guy who doesn't have the first clue about what it means to be a king. And she despises him. The word there is an absolute hatred of this guy. Hard to come home to that for your wife. Like really hard to come home to a wife who hates you. But David tells her that he's not trying to act like a king. He's trying to serve Yahweh. He tries to explain something to her. The problem is you can't explain to something to somebody who's irrationally hating you in the first place. There's no discussion to be had there. So his relationship with McCall is, is weak. Probably some of this hatred comes because, remember at the beginning of the chapter, he was taking a number of different wives. So her not being the one and only wife in this guy's life really hurts. And it does cause a division here that could be part of this narrative too. So worship humbly done God's way according to God's law with authority and order and a framework can be absolutely explosively joyful. And when done with the body, it can be done with shouting, not singing. It can be done with symbols and percussion. It can make a noise that the whole town hears and there will still be some people don't, don't respect when other people have joy. So the next chapter, the ark is going to arrive David's going to sing a song, and we will look at how Israel keeps this habit of worship as part of their national identity. And again, the Chronicles are writing to these people coming out of Babylon, and they're trying to point out how important worship is and what they're doing. And they're trying to establish worship after exile to Babylon so that they don't make the same mistakes. We want to come back to how David did it, and David did it with worship. So Ezra and Nehemiah do establish singers and musicians. In the temple, they're still singing and doing music by the time Jesus gets there. So they create these cultures that will be a permanent part of Jewish culture. For now and for tonight, though, we've covered a lot of ground. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for these images of worship that we can look at and we can study. And I, I pray, Lord, that you help us to understand worship in our own hearts. Lord, help us to give to you your due. You are worthy of worship. You are worthy of praise. As an almighty God, our Savior, our Redeemer, our strong tower, you are worth writing songs about. And Lord, we love you. We want to lift you up. We want to praise you with our lives. Help us to do it on a firm foundation. Help us to live our lives according to your word and not according to our feelings, our reason, our thoughts on the matter. Lord, help us to follow the world, not according to the world. What the, Help us to follow your word, not according to how the world says it, but according to how your word says it. And help us to adjust and align things right so that we can celebrate and live life in freedom and joy, knowing that we're doing it within your law. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.